Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast. Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Freddy B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 65th episode of the Nauticast entitled, The End of the Beginning, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Aria 5 in which George R.R. R. Martin finally stops sticking around, pulls out our hearts, and then, God, steps on them? Why, why does he have to do that? Steps on them while we watch. Because, Emmett, I'm afraid this is the chapter where, no, it's not going to happen this time. Ned's going to make it. He's going to fly away in a flock of pigeons. He's going to be just fine, right? Right? How did you ever get the reputation as a curmudgeon, Jeff? You're such a sweet summer child deep down. You know that? I, I, I Am I am I a sweet summer child? Am, am I? Am I? Oh, my God. I can't believe that, that Ned's going to die in this chapter. It's, it happens every single time I read this book. Why does it always happen this way? I know. You just want to get that instant replay going and change everything, but I'm afraid we can't, Jeff. Obviously, this is one of the big moments in the series. It was one of the big moments on the show as well. Uh, it really needs no introduction. It's bigger than all of us, and we just hope we do it justice. The reason why we want to do it a special justice this time around is because we have about 50-odd people or so who are watching us on our live stream of this episode, and thank you all very much. As you guys know, when we reached our $3,500 a month patron level, we opted to begin starting quarterly live streams. And if we reach our next stretch goal, which is coming up here hopefully somewhat soon, we'll start doing these monthly. So if you guys like what we're doing and like seeing our ugly mugs here, and our very large foreheads uh, going head to head to each other, then we get the uh, you you will get that opportunity provided we reach our next stretch goal on Patreon. So we really appreciate everyone doing that, and we appreciate everyone's contributions on Patreon for sure. Yeah, absolutely, uh, guys. We are we're always so impressed and flattered by your support, whether you give uh, to our patron or not. Uh, the fact that you're willing to show up and listen to us is is more flattering than anything else. So thank you very much. Absolutely. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council patrons on Patreon, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zors, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King, and thank you, counselors, very, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. So we wanted to start quickly before we actually get into a question with a fun riddle from one of our sworn swords, Lady B-Word, who is the Riddler of A Song of Ice and Fire. So she has a riddle for everyone here. So she says, Riddle, I kept it pretty easy for you guys. Thank you very much, because I suck at riddles. So she goes on. I am the link to both of your names. I forfeited all my claims. I fought with the fish. I saw the frog die. When my time is due... Will anyone cry? We'll reveal the answer at the end of this podcast. For sure. I always love a good riddle. You know, I was I was raised on The Hobbit like <laughs> like any good young nerd. So I developed a, a love for riddles at an early age. That, uh, that doesn't mean I'm any good at them. I think I might even be worse than Jeff. <laughs> well, you can't be that much worse than me. I'm terrible at riddles. I'll terrible, my best. terrible, terrible. Our uh, question this week comes from one of our small council members, Master of Zorse, who asks, what is the behind the scenes moment you would most like to read about? Personally, I love to read the conversations that took place between Stannis, Melisandre, and Mance. Well, that is an excellent question. There's so much great scenes that happen off screen in A Song of Ice and Fire that we just hear about afterwards 
or just suggested and implied. So how would you answer that question, Jeff? Well, I've said this often and many, many times before, but I'll say it again. I think one of the behind the scenes moments I would love to have read in a point of view chapter, and it wasn't possible given the point of view roster that George R. Martin has for A Dance with Dragons, but the conversation between Stannis and the Mountain Clansmen, where you have this taciturn angry, irritated king who's up there, who John tells Stannis, like, you have to go there. You have to praise the beauty of their women, praise how awesome their food is, smoke pipes with them, drink beer with them. And you just imagine Stannis there as this guy who literally flavors his water with salt and lemon, having to go hang out with all of these crazy, basically wildlings who are living under under the uh, under Winterfell uh, ostensibly, but are still maintaining a culture of a lot of freedom and a lot of autonomy and have status there hanging out with these guys, this kind of cold, very moral, very rigid guy up there hanging out with these guys. But somehow Stannis was able to win these guys to his side. And I've always wondered like how he was able to actually do that. Were they just impressed with his military acumen? Were they thinking like, oh, wow, this guy, um, well, I guess we don't really have any alternative given the fact that we have to rescue, or at that time they didn't know the Arya was captured, but given the fact that we have the Boltons and the Freys we have to take uh, take on and take out because they were part of the Red Wedding and they killed many of our kinsmen at the Red Wedding themselves. So what was the actual motivation to get the kinsmen, to get the clansmen on their side? Now, we do know that after they took Deepwood Mott, that the clansmen started clamoring for Stannis to march on Winterfell. But as far as we know, Stannis and the Klansmen did not know that Arya was at Winterfell until after that event in A Dance with Dragons. So that was after after the Wayward Bride, the, after the Ashes' first chapter that is the Wayward Bride from A Dance with Dragons. That's when they actually knew that. So what was the actual impetus for them to actually back Stannis and bring their swords and spears and, uh, and their flinty like stone axes? That's one of the things they talk about too onto Stannis' side in order to fight the Ironborn and then eventually march onto Winterfell. So what was that conversation actually like? I would love that behind-the-scenes moment from A Dance with Dragons. I know we're not going to get it, but I still really, really want it. You stole mine, Jeff, and that is such a perfect event in every possible way. Uh, we had a guilty undertaker in the chat who just says, the Mountain Clan's totes got Stannis drunk, which <laughs> I, I could definitely see. But as you say, it's, it's it's so fascinating to imagine Stannis sitting there with like his eye twitching and his arms crossed as they like, like you know, they play their pipes and do their like feats of strength the way John said they would and said Stannis would have to accept it. And he's just very begrudgingly listening to that. And yeah, it's a great question uh, why they bothered to march with them, especially since they don't seem to have bent the knee to him and don't really seem to have any long-term plans to stick with Stannis once they got a Stark back in Winterfell. I got to imagine it was a enemy of my enemy is a friend sort of thing when it came to sure. fighting the Ironborn. Stannis offered that. But while he's not temperamentally like the Wildlings, the Wildlings, Mountain Clans, revealing, as you say, <laughs> they're very similar. Well, he's not temperamentally like the mountain clans in terms of them being kind of like rough and rowdy and up for a drink and up for a, you know, a big roaring speech. Uh, they are like Stannis in terms of being very militant and not being very materialistic. Like they're the exact opposite of the Southron lords that flocked around Renly and then Stannis at Storm's End. People like Alistair Florin, who he really didn't seem to care for very much. The mountain clans aren't like that. And it, it, it ties into something I really like with Stannis in both Storm and Dance, which is that he feels like he temperamentally belongs more in the north than the south in some ways. Like he kind of right. makes more sense surrounded by the wall and like everyone in black cloaks and just grimness everywhere. He makes more sense there than he ever would in like the Reach or even King's Landing. So uh, that's a great choice. I think uh, the Master of Resources example is another great one. Stannis, Melisandre, and Mance having those conversations uh, at the end of St- Storm and the beginning of Dance because much as uh, 
we both love Stannis. I think if there's one character in the series I really love politically, it's actually more Mance. And I think he's he's a great character in and of himself. I would love to see their conversations. And then to to throw a more original one in the ring, just to stick with the Stannis theme, <laughs> I would love to actually have a scene between Stannis and Melisandre at last, yes. which we really haven't had in the books. And I understand why, again, no POV until Melisandre becomes one in dance, at which point Stannis has left the wall. And, you know, George wants to keep that relationship kind of mysterious and just kind of hint and allude to it. And I, I get why that is. And I, I think and hope that, you know, if and when we get the Winds of Winter, Melisandre's supposed to have a lot more chapters. She'll presumably link back up with Stannis at some point. That's when I think we'll see that relationship. But it, it, it is interesting. And I would love to have seen how Melisandre first got under Stannis' skin, so to speak. Because, you know, she had to win his trust and intimacy in a way that few have. And unlike a lot of, you know, witch sorceress characters, she didn't directly possess or bewitch him right off the bat. She convinced right. him and persuaded him and seduced him. So <laughs> that's something I would like to see. And I hope we I hope we do get to see one-on-ones between them in the Winds of Winter. Yeah, I, I agree there. And the really cool thing about that is that we do know that in the Winds of Winter, George has said that there will be multiple Melisandre chapters. We did talk about that in our analysis of Daenerys 8. So I imagine that is going to be some of the backstory that Melisandre will explore. In the, in the specific context that George was talking about, he was saying that he's going to explore a shy not... Uh, not necessarily as a place that we are going to see as it is right now, but we're going to see it in the dreams and memory of Melisandre. But I do imagine, too, that we're going to be seeing a bit of kind of the background, what brought Melisandre to Stannis, because that's always been a mystery, right? That we know that Melisandre sees Stannis as Azora High Reborn and sees him as the prophesied hero of, of history and of legend, and that's really, really cool, right? That's a big part of who Melisandre is, is that she is a true believer. And there was such a cool thing in A Dance with Dragons because so many people, apparently, and, and I wasn't a part of the fandom before 2011 when, the, when Game of Thrones aired, but I do strongly... I, I know, right? You were the OG in terms of that because you were there. You were reading the books back in like 2005, right? Yeah, my mom gave them to me. I was just reading the books all on my own before years before there ever was a show, and that does make me better than all of you. Carry on, Jeff. I, I can't believe that. I was just talking to my mom uh, tonight about letting her borrow my first season of Game of Thrones, but I couldn't find it in my library. My extensive mahogany, you know, leather-bound books in my library, and my like <laughs> season one and season two DVDs of Game of Thrones because she has a DVD player. We don't have a have a Blu-ray over this way because that's we're not adorable like that. Um, but but no, it's it's really really cool because I, I would love to see kind of like what more was was the evidence that Melisandre was seeing before she actually came to Dragonstone. And I've had this theory, if you want to call it that, that what Melisandre was seeing in her visions and dreams was a version of Jon Snow as Azora High Reborn because he is, you know, Rhaegar's son. Rhaegar would have been potentially the king after Aerys II. And, you know, the prince, and I have to imagine too, maybe Melisandre didn't actually see Stannis, but she was like, oh, well, the, you know, Azora High Reborn is going to be born on Dragonstone. He's going to be on Dragonstone. So she shows up to Dragonstone and all of a sudden there's Stannis Baratheon there proclaiming himself the king. And she's like, ah, now I can put two and two together. Stannis is on Dragonstone. The Azor High Reborn is supposed to be on Dragonstone when, in fact, she should be seeing Jon Snow. But, of course, prophecy is a fickle bitch, as we all like to say in The, in the Song of Ice and Fire and in this fan community. That's a direct quote from the series, I think. And, yeah, I think she might have been misinterpreting it as Jon. Obviously, we see that happen in Dance when she asks to see Azor High and R'hllor shows her only capital S Snow. But maybe she saw something that actually refers to Danny. If she was seeing visions of Dragonstone, well, Danny was born there. So maybe that's what that was referring to. So I think this this gets into kind of the ambiguity surrounding who exactly is Azor High and people reflecting more aspects of him than embodying him as one person. Like, you know, Melisandre thinks, ah, there's just, just one Azor High. It's just math. <laughs> one to one. 
And everything in the series that we see with Azor Ahai imagery and just the philosophy surrounding magic and prophecy in general suggests that she's wrong about that. True that, yeah. Melisandre is a true believer, but she always, always, always misinterprets her visions. And I think that's a great turn that George has, is that the prophet can see everything but she can't interpret it correctly. It's such a wonderful turn on George's part to make that that prophet character just all knowing, all knowing, but not all. I'm trying to make this sound intelligent. All seeing, yet not all knowing. Bam, nailed it. Perfect, Jeff. Yeah, I can't wait to get to Melisandre's character in Clash of Kings, as well as Stannis and Davos. Of course, George has called her the most misunderstood character in the series. I think he's right, and we're going to be making that case before too long. Absolutely. So, this is Arya's fifth chapter in A Game of Thrones. It's an interesting chapter because it's, um, well, everybody remembers the second half, as Emma's going to talk about here, but nobody remembers the first half. But there's like two-thirds of this chapter has nothing to do with Ned Stark's execution, as we're going to be finding out here momentarily. So, here is the synopsis for A Game of Thrones, Arya 5. The smell of evil drifts along the street of flour. It's calorie-heavy, carbohydrate-soaked, bread. Yuck. And Arya Stark takes a deep-ass whiff of this hot bread and thinks, very wrongly I should add, that it's a sweeter smell than perfume. Through the smell of death and calories, Arya stalks her prey, a fat pigeon. And a fat pigeon is an idiot bird, I have to say that up front, eating a stale crust of bread. Arya's stick sword whirls out, crushing the bird's feet, and then the not-a-lady of House Stark grabs the bird and twists its neck until the bone snaps. Hmm... The bird breaking its legs and then getting its net and then getting its neck snapped. Gosh, that just seems so foreshadowing and not at all ominous, right? I mean, it's it's so weird that this would be the thing that would start this chapter, right, Emmett? Yes, but on the other hand, screw pigeons. <laughs> yeah, fuck pigeons. They're, They're the rats with wings. I find it difficult to feel sorry for them. Carry on. I, I agree there. Look at us agreeing on something. It's something that we never get here on the Nauta cast. <clears throat> A passing septon looks on Arya with a look that I'm sure George R. R. Martin was personally familiar with in his youth in the Catholic Church. And that look is reproachful. And Arya, matter of fact, tells the septon that this is the best place to find pigeons. Father looks askance, hurries away, and Arya ties the pigeon to her belt. As Arya moves down the street, she encounters a man and his food truck. He's selling fruit tarts from it, blueberries, lemons, and apricots. Yum. And that makes Arya hungry. She asks if she can have a sample, but no samples today. Three coppers, the man says. Arya doesn't have coppers, but she does have a pigeon. And believing that King's Landing is a Habesian state of nature and could operate on a barter system, Arya attempts to exchange her pigeon for one of those tarts. But no, King's Landing is not quite Habesian. Yet. The others take your pigeon, the man says. Arya looks at the warm tarts, considers pinching one, but then Sirio's voice comes whispering back into her head. She sees the cart man with her eyes, thinking that he's left-legged and that she could make off with one of those tasty cakes from his cart before he'd know better. But then the man stops her cold. You be keeping your filthy hands off. The gold cloaks know how to deal with thieving little gutter rats that they do. Well, Arya ain't about having an encounter with the gold cloaks. Two of them are nearby, and she decides to back away to avoid any encounters with the robbery homicide squad of the gold cloaks. The very sight of the cops makes her makes her queasy. Gosh, Emmett, so much for the tolerant left getting all queasy around cops and shit like that. I don't know what you're. I don't know what you're talking about, Jeff. I love uh, America's defenders and first responders. <laughs> mm, thin blue line, baby. Thin blue line. 
and now everyone in the chat is hating me. All right, on onwards and upwards. Though Arya hadn't approached the Red Keep since she left it, she'd seen the heads mounted on spikes on the red walls and the crows flying around them thick as flies. And she knew from the flea bottom rumor mill that the gold cloaks had thrown him with the Lannisters with Janos Lint, that frog-faced motherfucker, having been raised to lordship in exchange for his service. It's not service, it's fucking treachery. Either or, depending on your wrong perspective. And there were other rumors too, like Ned had killed Robert, Renly had killed Ned, Renly had killed Robert, and then fled like a terrorist to escape justice for his crimes. Another really, really wild story had it that Robert had been killed by a boar. Or maybe he had died eating the boar? No, 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 no. Var has poisoned Robert. No, goddammit. Cersei had poisoned Robert. He got the herp, he got the herp and died from that. He choked on a bone. A fish bone, guys. Jeez, get your sewer minds right with the Lord. Ultimately, though, the one thing that all the stories concurred on was that Robert was dead. The bells from the Great Sept of Baylor had rung all through the day and night with, and I really, really love this imagery, the thunder of their grief rolling across the city in a bronze tide. God, George can really, really write, as if you guys didn't know. But Arya doesn't really have any skin in the game about whether Robert is dead or not, or who actually killed him. She just wants to go home, but that's easier said than done. The cops were everywhere, and she'd visited each of the King's Landing gates daily, but she, fat, but she had found that three of the gates were barred, while the mud and God's gates were only open to incoming civilian traffic. In fact, there was really only one gate open to people trying to get the fuck out of the city. The King's Gate. But that was no sure thing. Lannister Black Cloaks were searching wagons and everyone going out of the gate. She might be caught if she tried going out that way. So she tried to think of other options. There was the option of potentially swimming across the Blackwater, but that would likely prove fatal due to the fast currents on the river. She could pay someone to take her across, provided she had money, of course, which she doesn't. And this had caused Arya to begin forgetting why her father, Ned, had warned her not to steal. Sooner or later, she would have to get the fuck out of King's Landing and risk the gold cloaks. Because beyond simply the danger of being captured by the gold cloaks, the greater danger was becoming hunger. At first, she did in several pigeons raw, and she feared that she was growing sick from doing that. And while sure, there were pot shops in the alleys in Fleet Bottom, where massive tubs of stew had been brewing for years, and she could trade half a pigeon to the pot shop owners for a, you know, for a heel of stale bread and a, quote, bowl of brown, tasty, tasty, even getting the other half of her bird put into the fire, the problem was that the shops weren't empty. People had eyes, and those eyes, well, they stared at Arya. Arya didn't know what they were thinking, but she did notice them looking at her cloak and boots. You know, kind of that Stark clothing that Arya of House Stark, one of the most powerful houses of Westeros, had taken from the Red Keep before she had left. She'd been followed. She'd even been followed a few times into the alleys and even chased once or twice. But no one had caught her yet. But that hadn't meant that she'd gotten off scot-free. She'd been robbed of her silver bracelet and bundle of clothes the first night. She'd only been able to maintain her cloak and her sword needle since she was using the cloak as a blanket and had been sleeping on top of her sword needle. Arya then had turned to having the cloak over the right side of her body to conceal needle and had moved about King's Landing holding a stick sword to ward off those who might mean her harm or mean to rob her. But she knew some of these jabronis in Flea Bottom wouldn't have been scared off even if she wielded a battle axe. So she'd been avoiding Flea Bottom as late. And as a consequence, often as not, she went to bed hungry rather than risk the stairs. 
Arya fantasizes about what it'll be like outside of King's Landing, why she'd pick berries, scavenge berries, fruits and brutes. Hell, she might even chase down rabbits. There weren't any rabbits in King's Landing, only dogs and rats. And while the pot shops would pay a fistful of coppers for a litter of puppies, wow, yikes, Arya is not about to go at all Astapori on herself. We flash back to the present with Arya moving down the maze of alleys and cross streets below the Street of Flower. A press of people crushes their way through, and Arya navigates using the middle of the street, a trick that she had learned early on. A gaggle of small children runs past Arya, chasing a, ru- chasing a rolling hula hoop. Arya envies the children their games and innocence, and Arya thinks back to the time when she played hoops with Bran, John, and Rickon. Aw. Oh, she wonders how big Rickon is now, or whether Bran is sad. But more than anything, she misses John, and wishes he was there to muss her hair and call her little sister. Everybody shed a tear. Okay, get your get your emotions back and back in line. Here we go. She had once tried talking to the kids in King's Landing, trying to make friends, but the small ones had run away in fear while the big kids asked questions that she couldn't answer. And one of those goddamn brats had even tried knocking her down to take her boots. Only the swift whirl of Arya's stick sword against the child's ear had prevented her from being robbed of her footwear. Yikes. Arya sees a seagull too high above her head to try and take it down, but it does make her think of the sea. Hey, now the sea. Maybe that's the way out of this dump of a town, Arya sort of thinks. She decides to make her way down to the wharf to see if there's passage out as a stowaway. Old Nan had told tales of boys and girls stowing away board ships. She could do the same. When Arya arrives, she finds the wharf quiet. Too quiet. She sees a pair of gold cloaks on patrol side by side, but they don't look at her. And the dock itself is weirdly only half full. And guys, that's Castanis appropriated the fleet. It's the goddamn royal fleet after all, and he is the king. So Arya glumly thinks that the sea might not be the way out until she sees guardsmen in gray woolen cloaks trimmed with white satin. The sight of Winterfell's colors brought tears to Arya's eyes. Behind them, a sleek three-bank trading galley rocked at her moorings. Arya asks what ship this is, and a longshoreman tells her, well, it's the Windswitch out of Mir. Arya is overjoyed. That's the same ship her father hired to take Arya and Sansa back home in Eddard 14. Hooray! All's right with the world. She's about to sail back to Winterfell, right guys? Right? So she starts to approach this non-trapped ship and sees two guardsmen dicing and one on patrol. Arya realizes she's crying and starts to rub the tears from her eyes, and this causes a very interesting reaction. Her eyes. Her eyes. Her eyes. Why did... Look with your eyes, she heard Cyril whisper. Arya looks with her eyes. She'd known every one of Ned's men, but these three were strangers. The one patrolling catches sight of Arya. You! What do you want here, boy? This causes the other two guardsmen to look up from their dice. Arya swallows hard. She knows that if she runs, they chase her, and they might catch her. So instead, she steps forward, not away from the guardsmen. And as she does, she realizes that they think her a boy. Well, by gumbo, she'd be a boy then. Want to buy a pigeon? The guardsmen tell her to get out, and Arya scurries away, not pretending to be frightened, because she's absolutely fucking terrified. When she comes to after running, she finds herself back at Fleet Bottom. Arya knew this part of King's Landing by the smell of the pots of brown alone. And she's still hungry. But sadly, so sadly, Arya realizes that the pigeon she had kept with her all day is gone. She wanted to cry, and knows that she'll need to head back down to the Street of Flower to find another pigeon as large as the one she'd be carrying all day. But then, the bells ring. Bum bum bum! Arya looks up and hears their distant thunder. Others peer out too. Small folk clatter about, wondering if Joffrey is dead. Nope, not yet. Storm of Swords, wait for that. Instead, it's a summoning bell. Everyone needs to gather at one particular spot. 
Arya sees two boys running in one direction and calls after them. What's happening? The gold cloaks is carrying him to the step. Is carrying him to the sept. Who? The hand. They'll be taking his head off. Arya is running, but she doesn't know it. She trips over a rut left in the road by a wagon, and she falls to the ground, her knee in hand, a bloody mess. The Redwine twins pass by her then. Arya remembers that Sansa and Jane Poole used to call them Sir Horror and Sir Slobber, which is great. And while her sister had giggled then, Arya ain't laughing now. Everyone moves towards the direction of the bell. Arya's finger hurts. She tore off her thumbnail when she had fallen. Big fucking ouch there. She bites, not chews her lip this time, limping towards the sounds ahead. She hears the voices of the people of King's Landing all around her talking about how the hand was has been carried and maybe they should start betting over whether he gets beheaded or not. Then we get some more debate on what exactly happened to Robert with more rumors tossed about. It's good, clean, Christian fun. Yay. Arya reaches the street of sisters and finds a wall of people there. She lets the crowd push her forward as everyone gets closer and closer to none other than Baylor's Sept. But the crush of people is too great. She can't see anything. She spies a cart and thinks to mount it, but she decides otherwise after watching an angry teamster whipping people away from mounting the cart. Finally, she's pushed to the front of the crowd and she comes up to stone. She looks up and Baylor's statue is there in front of her. She climbs the statue, wedging herself between King Baylor Targaryen's legs. That was when she saw her father. Ned stands on the pulpit with two gold cloaks between him. He's dressed nicely, though, with his, gray and gold, with his gray and white wool cloak, but Ned was thin now, more skinny than she'd ever seen him. And he was in pain. His face was practically painted with anguish. And it wasn't like he was truly standing either. The gold cloaks were essentially holding him up. And behind Ned was the High Septim, the highest offer in the Faith of the Seven, old, gray, fat, wearing white robes and an enormous Pope hat made of spun gold and a crystal that shattered light into rainbows whenever he moved about. But there were more than just those people there. Joffrey was there too with his knights and high lords. Cersei was there in mock mourning clothing. Oh, and there was Sander Clegane too with four other Kingsguard knights. Yes, Sander Clegane is wearing his white cloak there. And Varys, he's there too. Oh, and then some strange short dude with a pointed triangle dick beard who had fought for Catelyn's hand in marriage. Yep, MF and Littlefinger is there too. Gosh, Emmett, why is he there? Just so much hmm about why Littlefinger might be there at this event. Oh yeah, we'll get into that, believe you me. We'll get into Littlefinger's presence towards the end of the episode. I cannot fucking wait for that. But then Arya spies Sansa there too, and she scowls at her sister for standing up there smiling. Like, why are you smiling? What the fuck does, does Sansa have to be happy about? A line of riot cops holds back the small folk from getting too close to Baylor's Sept. They're ready to deploy MRAPs, SWAT, and military-style and military style rifles if the small folk get too uppity. Gods only help the small folk if they start calling for systemic political and social reform. Whew, bad times are about to start happening in Kingsland if that happens. And finally, the bell stops tolling, and Ned begins to speak. And the people respond with their usual response. What? Louder! Louder! Louder from the front! Arya feels a righteous indignation. You leave him alone, she wants to shout. But she knows no one will hear, and no one will listen. But then Ned lifts his head and look. Summarization is fine. I mean, I, I enjoy doing these things, but this deserves the full reading. So bear with me, because this is kind of a longer passage in this chapter. And this is Ned's confession. I am Eddard Stark, Lord of Winterfell and Hand of the King. And I come before you to confess my treason and the sight of gods and men. No, Arya whimpered. Below her, the crowd began to scream and shout. Taunts and obscenities filled the air. Sansa had hidden her face, had hidden her face in her hands. 
Her father raised his voice still higher, straining to be heard. I betrayed the faith of my king and the trust of my friend Robert, he shouted. I swore to defend and protect his children. Yet before his blood was cold, I plotted to depose and murder his son and seize the throne for myself. Let the high septon and Baylor the beloved and the seven bear witness to the truth of what I say. Joffrey Baratheon is the one true heir to the Iron Throne, and by the grace of all the gods, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and Protector of the Realm. Just devastating, man. Utterly devastating. And yet, there's a fun little turn of phrase in what Ned is pro- in, in Ned's proclamation. Did you guys in the chat catch it? We'll talk about it in a bit if you didn't. A stone comes hurling from the crowd as Ned gets hit in the face to Arya's dismay. The gold cloaks hold Ned up while two Kingsguard knights step in front of Cersei and Joffrey to be their personal meat shields. Arya's hand goes needle and it grips around the leather. She prays, please, please, gods, keep him safe. Don't let them hurt my father. The High Septon steps forward and somehow, somehow kneels in front of Joffrey. I, you know, I like to think he kind of flops instead of kneels in front of Joffrey because, you know, just you, you see the, the kind of the image, the way that George has painted this guy. Like, it's pretty ridiculous the way this guy looks. And it's also funny imagining this guy flop in front of Joffrey. As we sin, so do we suffer. This man has confessed his crimes in the sight of gods and men here in this holy place. The gods are just, yet Baylor the Blessed taught us that they are also merciful. What shall be done with this traitor, your grace? Barabbas, the crowd screams. Give us Barabbas. Ah, wait, that's the wrong story. But I mean, kind of different, but similar at the same time. And then Prince Joffrey, no, King Joffrey Arya thinks, steps forward. And you bitches know I need to read this one. My mother bids me let Lord Eddard take the black, and Lady Sansa has begged mercy for her father. Joffrey looked straight at Sansa then and smiled. And for a moment, Arya thought that the gods had heard her prayer. Until Joffrey turned to the crowd and said, But they have the soft hearts of women. So long as I am your king, treason shall not go unpunished. Sir Ellen, bring me his head. The crowd goes wild and Arya feels Baylor statue rocking under her. The High Septon, still in a near-fetal position, clutches at Joffrey's cloak. Varys comes rushing forward, waving his arms, thinking, Oh my god, my twenty-year plan to put some Blackfire on the throne is suddenly running into complications. And even Cersei is trying to say something like, But Joff, my good boy Joff, I must advise you otherwise. But Joffrey shakes his head and everyone moves aside. Hmm, damn, it's almost like an indictment of an entire feudal society, right, Emmett? Don't bring up politics, Jeff. That's just cheap and tawdry of you. It really is. In a book about called A Game of Thrones, bringing up politics is really cheap and tawdry of me. I apologize to no one because I will never apologize for anything ever. Through the gap, a tall man steps forward. It's none, it's none other than the prologue point of view for the Winsome Winner, Sir Ellen Payne. <laughs> He's not confirmed to be the prologue character, guys. I know I'm going to get a thousand messages about that. Sansa falls to her feet, sobbing hysterically, and Sir Ellen climbs the stairs towards Ned at the pulpit. Arya scrambles off Baylor's statue, drawing Needle. She lands on someone, bowls over him, and pushes towards the front. Arya slashes at people with Needle in a blind fury. Above her, Ilan Payne gives the signal to a knight in black and gold, and the knight gives the command. The gold cloaks throw Eddard Stark to the ground. Someone shouts at Arya, but she moves beyond his reach. Someone reaches for her leg, but she kicks it aside and hacks it with her sword. Yikes, there's a lot of like kind of blind violence in this chapter. Arya slashes her sword at people, trying, trying, trying to get to Ned. But it's no good. There are too many people. She can't make it in time. Sir Ilan draws a massive two-handed great sword from behind his back, and Arya realizes that this guy, this motherfucker, has ice. Ned's sword. 
Tears come streaming down her face and then a hand reaches out and grips her arm. Needle goes flying from her grasp and Arya is pulled to the span. A face comes within a centimeter of hers. Don't look. Arya sobs and the man shakes her. Shut your mouth and close your eyes, boy. And then it comes. Dimly, as if from far away, she heard a noise. A soft sighing sound as if a million people had let out their breath all at once. The man holds onto Arya. Look at me. Yes, that's the way of it. At me. The old man's breath smells like old wine. Remember, boy? Arya does remember. The smell is kind of what does it. The old black cloak over a twisted shoulder helps her memory even further. This was the night's watchman who had visited Ned after she was in the black cells. Know me now, do you? There's a bright boy. But now the deed is done, and Arya is coming with this man. The press dissolved around them as people drifted back to their lives. But Arya's life was gone. Numb, she trailed along besides... Yorin. Yes, his name is Yorin. She did not recall him finding Needle until he handed the sword back to her. Hope you can use that boy. Arya starts to protest that she's not a boy, but Yorin shoves her against a doorway. Not a smart boy, is that what you mean to say? As Yorin holds her with one hand, Arya sees he has another knife in his other hand. And the end of the chapter, oh wow, I had really actually forgotten how this chapter ends because it ends on such a fucking cliffhanger. As the blade flashed toward her face, Arya threw herself backward, kicking wildly, wrenching her head from side to side, but he had her by the hair, so strong. She could feel her scalp tearing, and on her lips, the salt taste of tears. And that is a Game of Thrones Aria 5. Everyone in the chat and everyone who's listening now can now let out their breath. They've been holding now, but wow, just wow. I mean, look, I, I remember like, I don't know about you, but I remember where I was when 9-11 happened, what I was doing. I was in my basement, not at school, where I should have been, when my mom came down to tell me that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. I remember where I was when I asked my wife to marry me. I was in my old apartment and we were watching The Hangover and I excused myself to, quote, use the bathroom, but I went to get the ring instead. And I also remember where I was when Ned Stark was executed. It was June 2011. I was in my basement apartment at my brother's house. I had just been home for about six months from Afghanistan, and I was watching this episode on my laptop, and I just knew that Ned was going to make it. You can't kill Ned, guys. He's a main character. You can't. You can't. You can't. You did. Oh, my God, you did. So, Emmett, where were you when Ned Stark was executed? I remember being outside. I was on the porch reading it. And I didn't even think about whether Ned Stark was going to live or die because I was just flipping through the pages so quickly and waiting to see what happened. And then what was just so devastating was was how it was described, that that sudden sigh, that that soft moment when it's like everyone's breath went out. And that was just devastating because it wasn't this, this big, loud moment that just exploded on the page. It was so quiet and so fragile. And then that just that devastating line, but Arya's life was gone. I mean, this this event has a reputation of just like, you know, exploding your brain. And it does to a certain extent, as you were describing, but I didn't expect it to be so, so quiet. And I just felt just like kind of sad and alone. And it was, it was so, so fragile and so haunting. And I'll never forget that first time. Yeah. It's such a, it's so devastating of a moment. And like, look, I know like in retrospect, you're like, oh, well, you know, Ned Stark's not the main character in Song of Ice and Fire. But would you actually get that impression from reading a Game of Thrones the first time or watching season one of, of Game of Thrones, a TV show? No, I mean, he's a huge major mega star who had been in numerous movies. And yes, we had to put aside or always that feeling like, oh, Sean Bean always dies. They're like, no, no, Sean Bean's not. He's going to make it this time, guys. He's really, really going to make it. But but no. And. That's really fascinating because this chapter, 
it's one of those things that when you when you look at it, it's one of the two major moments in A Song of Ice and Fire. When people think about the series of books as it is in the TV series, it's basically, well, uh, there's a third moment too. It's basically when Ned Stark dies, another event, and of course, Jon Snow's death at the end of A Dance of Dragons. Those are the three major events that people look at A Song of Ice and Fire as. But yeah, it's, it's such a seminal moment and so iconic in this series and in fantasy and fantasy fiction altogether. The third event being the Red Wedding, of course. And yeah, other than the Red Wedding, this is the single most iconic, most remembered and discussed event in both A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. I think this is probably the best adapted moment in the show, in my opinion. I think, as I'll talk about near the end of the episode, I think you could argue they made it even better than it is in the books. It's right. it's a landmark in pop culture, as you were saying. Everyone kind of remembers where they were the first time they read it. And it's just, it's so perfectly set up. Our hero, Ned Stark, father to his children and his men, driven first like a noir detective to find the truth, and then like a paladin to save innocent lives from that same truth, is bruised and battered and brought low in every fashion. A war for all Westeros hangs in the balance, with an even greater threat looming on the northern horizon. And here comes Joffrey, the shining golden prince at the end of the rainbow. He's going to spare the white heart and heal the land like in Sansa's stories. And he turns to her with a smile, and then he pulls out a knife and cuts the poor thing's throat. The blood spills over the pale marble. The dream is defiled. The prince is a monster. And the war spreads outward from the sacrifice of our protagonist. It's, it's, it's a narrative prism. Like if you imagine like the cover of Dark Side of the Moon. Like the story comes into this and then it splinters out into a thousand rays from this one dreadful cathartic burst of energy. This is what the entire book has been building to. The overarching theme of loss that we've been talking about. The bright shining possibilities of youth and song and fantasy giving way to the reality of mortality. Lyanna in her bed of blood and Robert in his, Sansa's cheers of joy at the hand's tourney cut short by Gregor Clegane's crimes, both past and present, Bran's dreams of knighthood dashed when a knight steps out of the stories and throws him for a fall. Ned's death is the fall, the ultimate, the ultimate incarnation of the fall from grace that is a Game of Thrones central subject. Coming back to it now, as we were suggesting by remembering when we first read it, it feels, perversely enough, like going home. Not to remember childhood, but to remember the moment childhood ended, the moment you grew up, to quote Ned, the moment when all the smiles died. Yeah, that's a really, really good way of, of, of putting it. I mean, I'm not saying that George was like really like excited to like get to this and excited to have Ned Stark die, but it does feel like there's a sense of satisfaction in concluding his arc this way. In that it does deconstruct some, you know, fantasy tropes. I think that George gets this reputation of being the subverter of fantasy tropes of, oh, well, you think that nobody's safe, right? You think that that's actually what's going to happen. Nobody's actually safe. And you're like, well, yes, yes and no. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we have to be honest with ourselves. And I think George is honest too. And that, yes, nobody is safe and you want to be like terrified to turn the next page. At the same time, though, like there are certain safe characters that have been safe from the very beginning. And, you know, Game of Thrones season eight and the end of it did show us potentially a version of who is going to be ultimately be safe in the narrative. But Ned Stark is not safe here. Ned Stark's downfall is an excellent deconstruction of the heroic figure falling from grace. I mean, we all know that Ned has the most number of chapters in a Game of Thrones. He's got 15 chapters. A man who has 15 chapters who dominates practically a quarter of this book with his narratives, with numerous other arias. Sansa, Arya Sansa and Catelyn chapters revolving around Ned too. All of that builds to this event and that does a great job of deconstructing who Ned Stark is and how his downfall comes about. Now, it's, it's stupid and it's idiotic to say that Ned died because he was dumb. Because, you know, as we talked about in previous episodes, 
Ned died because Joffrey is a fucking psychopath. It's not because, like, Ned was so stupid to trust the Lannisters and trust Varys and trust Littlefinger. I mean, he was maybe not quite so... Uh, a little more should not have trusted Littlefinger. But the the standards of Westerosi culture and politics means that Ned Stark should have survived. He should have made it through this moment. But because this story... And this particular event are showing us feudal culture at its absolute worst. He can't. He can't survive. And of course, he can't survive, too, because of the narratives. But before we get to the actual death of Ned Stark, there is a lot of stuff in this chapter. Like I said, when we got before we got to it, like two thirds of this chapter has nothing to do at all with Ned Stark's death. Yeah, for the first half of this chapter, it's Arya Stark, the Kenzian orphan. It's very different. Like, this is kind of a weird chapter. As, as you said earlier, everyone remembers the second half. And the first half has some thematic connections to Ned's execution, but plot-wise, it really doesn't have anything to do with it. It's not the most, like, structurally exact chapter in the series. Like, we were comparing it to the Red Wedding, and you go, you look at uh, Storm of Swords, Catelyn 7, the main Red Wedding chapter, and, like, everything in that chapter fits together from the first words with the drumming and Catelyn feeling sick to her stomach. Every single word is perfectly in its place. This isn't exactly that, but the first half is still good. It's less about wrapping things up for book one and more in a variety of ways about establishing how Arya's story is going to work in books two and three. So let's let's take let's go all the way apart from Arya Stark and talk about George R. Martin in 1996. So as you guys know, originally George R. Martin's conception was that he would end a Game of Thrones with the Red Wedding, which how? Why? Why? Well, no, no, bad, 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 George. So he makes the right decision to push the Red Wedding back. So he gets to about he, – he writes about 1,500 manuscript pages, if I'm remembering correctly, what folks like Adam Whitehead, a.k.a. Wordhead, have talked about, George's process in writing a Game of Thrones. And he comes back and he's like, well, I've got like so many additional pages, but I want this book to be around 1,100 manuscript pages. So he had – so he took about three to 400 pages of extra material then made that the the opening chapters for A Clash of Kings. And you do wonder whether the way this chapter is written, whether at some point before George ended up writing A Clash of Kings or deciding that he had to write A Clash of Kings, rather, that he had this as a separate aria chapter that would have talked, kind of built a little bit more up to Ned Stark's execution. But then he ended up kind of going back and rewriting this chapter a bit and taking some of these, some of the, the narrative and the manuscript pages that he had written for this chapter uh, for a separate chapter that was before Ned Stark's execution and having it kind of be the foundation for the Ned execution scene before then taking further Arya chapters. And I'm thinking specifically of Arya's first chapter in A Clash of Kings as one that George potentially took from the original Game of Thrones manuscript, cut it to the Clash, a Clash of Kings itself, and then, of course, wrote it, uh, rewrote it a little bit as well. So I think that's a strong possibility here. And I do think there is some moments where I can almost see George's like rewriting hand here. I'll kind of point them out as we're going through this kind of depth section uh, of this chapter. But I do think it's fascinating the way that George writes is that he's consistently pushing stuff farther and farther back. Like, well, we can't have the Red Wedding at the end of of book one, so it's going to be the end of book two. It's going to be the end of book three. You know, Daenerys Targaryen was supposed to gather up all the Dothraki at the end of book one. No, at the end of book two. At the end of book three, four... Five, hopefully six, you know, right? So I mean, like these are this is just kind of George's style here. I mean, there's that we've got a friend, uh, Mighty Isabel, who has always talked about that a song of ice and fire is always just two books away from being completed, and that all goes all the way back to the very beginning, where you know George was only just two books away from being completed at the end of a Game of Thrones, and then no, sorry to say, no. 
Not so much. But yeah, I think that's a very strong argument, Jeff, especially if you look at the beginning of book two and Arya gets all these chapters right away before even a lot of characters get their first one. So that does feel like George moved a lot of that stuff that was originally at the end of book one into the beginning of book two. And you can definitely see the seams to a certain extent, but there's still a lot of strong content in the first half here. Arya Underfoot is going to be our eyes on the ground for the war raging in Westeros and the Clash of Kings and the Storm of Swords, wandering through the dust left behind by all the crusading kings. And you can see the first half of Arya Five as a kind of a dress rehearsal, wherein George tries out the tones and themes that are going to dominate that storyline. So there's a few elements here that are very key for Arya's story going forward. You have these constant threats to safety that are going to happen in the Riverlands that come up in this chapter. You've got kids attacking her, her stuff being stolen the first night. You've got like grown men staring at her and clearly thinking about sexually assaulting her when she's in the pot shops. you got soldiers on the hunt for her. There's, there's just danger at every corner, and she's going to find that in the Riverlands as well. You're going to find out with Arya's story that there's no worthy institutions to which she can appeal. Every time she's going to try to find, you know, some larger authority that can help her in the Riverlands, it's it's pretty much always going to fall apart. Even with the, the Brotherhood, who she stays for a long time, she ends up feeling she can't trust them. Uh, she can't trust the faith in this chapter, that passing Septon, who looks at her like, oh, what are you doing when she's grabbing a pigeon? And it's like, oh, really? Like a, a member of the cloth, you're not like, oh, look at this poor orphan from the streets who clearly is desperate for food. Maybe I should take them in as the seven would want. No, he's, he just looks at her and keeps walking. You're not going to find any any quarter there, are you? She can't trust the gold cloaks, of course, and she certainly can't trust the crown, as we find out at the end of this chapter. And that same kind of feeling uh, persists when she gets to the Riverlands. You have this uh, sensation in the first half of this chapter of a city at war. You got the, the gold cloaks hunting for her and other Stark loyalists. You got, as you were saying in the synopsis, gossip everywhere, but precious little truth. Everyone is rising and falling. Jano Slint is on the way up as, as the, the gossip talks about him uh, making his way to the small council as a lord. Then you've got Ned falling. And that same sense of, of rising and falling fortunes and the chaos of war being a ladder is going to persist in the Riverlands as well. Just look at look at how many people run Harrenhal by the end. And then you have Arya's takeaway from all this, which is that violence is the only way to survive. She's killing pigeons at the start of this chapter. I mean, obviously, I understand she needs to eat, but like the way she's like thinking, ah, this is easy compared to catching cats. Like that's the first sign that, oh, Arya's going to have to do some kind of shady stuff once she get out to the Riverlands. She's she's eating this meat at the pot shops, which she realizes is, you know, some of this might be puppies. We know, as we'll discuss from A Storm of Swords, that some of it might be people. And then you have this haunting line. Her lord father had taught her never to steal, but it was growing harder to remember why. Ooh, that's just devastating because she's now out of her comfort zone. She's out of this position where she doesn't have to worry about where her meals meals are coming from. Now she really has to worry. So this ethical prescription against thievery is being eroded away. And it's it's the first chapter away from home, and that's already setting in. Of course, we're going to see way more of that when we get to the Riverlands. And she's trying to fit in among the peasants, but they know she's not one of them. As she says, as soon as she starts talking, they start looking at her like, no, you're not from Flea Bottom. That's going to be a persistent theme when she gets to Harrenhal and, and under Roose Bolton and she has to like remind herself to talk like she's not highborn. Uh, and, and the bitter irony, of course, is that Arya thinks life is going to be so much easier if she can just make it out of the city. It'll be just like it was on the King's Road. I'll find berries and roots and Tom Bombadil will be there and I'll have just a great dinner with him. And it's like, no, no, my poor sweet summer child, things are going to get even worse on the road. And the only really silver lining you can see established here that's going to keep going in her Riverland story is that she's got Sirio's teachings to guide her. When she goes to the port, that little scene at the Wind Witch, and she remembers, look with her eyes. So she knows, oh, these men are wearing stark colors, but they're not my father's men. They're in disguise. They're looking for me. They're hoping to trick me and trap me. And uh, so, so she has to pretend to be a boy. That kind of gender disguise is going to be a, a crucial part of her time in the Riverlands. But it, it's good to establish with all the kind of misery and bleak stuff being set up in this chapter, it's good for her 
good to set up her survival strategy being established as well. And a lot of that has to do with Sirio's teachings. Poor, poor Sirio. Rip. Rip, man. Rip, totally rip on him. But I think it's a fascinating point you bring up about how the institutions of King's Landing are failing her, whether it's going to be the cops, the politics, the religion too. But that doesn't, but again, like, I think like a lesser storyteller than George would be like, well, all those things are bad. All institutions are bad and we should be extremely cynical about this. And yes, Arya needs to learn a little bit of realism and learning that people, if they're wearing, you know, a cop uniform or if they're like holding like a, a cross or whatnot are not necessarily out for Arya's best interests. Instead, she has to learn to distinguish people for who they are, regardless of what she of, of what the clothing they wear, they're wearing. Which, again, we did talk a little bit about that in Daenerys 8, if you guys have listened to that already, where our, where we talked about in Harrenhal how Arya has to learn to distinguish that people who are wearing a Stark clothing and her carrying Stark banners are not necessarily good people. And that is very important for her arc, for her training arc. And a lot of these early Arya chapters, and especially the first three books in Song of Ice and Fire with Arya chapters, are not totally, but are an extended training montage, or not montage, extended training arc for her to progress her forward to the House of Black and White, where she engages in even further training. Training that George R. R. Martin had wanted to uh, kind of do away with with the five-year gap so she can come out as a kind of fully-fledged assassin and get onto her plot work in, in The Wind's Winter. But I think it's really good that George takes the opportunity to kind of learn Arya about like the hard ways of life. And life in King's Landing is really, really hard. People are not out for her best interest. People are potentially dangerous towards her. And people know that she's not one of them. And I think that's such an interesting distinguishment that George makes about Arya, that despite her being dirty, hungry, filthy, she still has enough accoutrements of high class and high culture and of the noble class of Westeros that she, people look at her, they stare at her, and Arya knows that they're staring at her. And it's really kind of sad because, like, that means that she can't partake in this kind of common small folk culture in King's Landing. She stops going to Fleet Bottom to enjoy the, the bowls of brown, and she stops doing that because she realizes that people are going to look at her, chase her, and potentially, you know, turn her over to the cops. And that's really kind of sad that she's she can get only get so far but she is still Arya of House Stark she is she could pretend to be Ari in in a clash of kings she could pretend to be whatever type of person cat of the canals and these different characters in a feast for crows but she's still going to be Arya Stark now that is a good thing ultimately because that will be what brings her back to Westeros likely in the winds of winter but at the same time that the fact that she is Arya of House Stark is a form of danger to her. So she's trying to fit in, but she can't necessarily fit in, and that leads to a lot of consequences, external and internal. And I do really, really enjoy that scene from the ports. I had not totally forgotten it, but when I reread this chapter, it's like, oh yeah, this is where this happens at. Where she's there and she starts to like really she takes her experiences in Fleet Bottom essentially and realizing that people are not out for her best interest. She takes the things that Cyril Farrell has taught her about look with your eyes, child. And she looks with her eyes and sees these men there. And she's like, I know all of my dad's guys. These guys are not my dad's guys. So the fact that she's able to make that distinction and is able to make a smart on the fly decision in order to prevent herself from being captured really speaks to Arya as a character and speaks to her learning and growing. I mean, there's little like moments throughout this chapter where they talk about where, where George talks about how Arya learned to like walk through the center of the street, which is something that she learned very early on, which is really, really good. And she's, you know, learning as well to, to kind of let the crowd push her forward when she gets to Baylor Sept itself. Things that she's learning on the streets, which are fascinating and which help to grow Arya and make her a character that is not necessarily 
necessarily, and this is a key distinction as well, is not necessarily the eyes of the small folk in A Clash of Kings, but gives us a perspective on the small folk in, in A Clash of Kings and on into A Storm of Swords. I think that's a really good distinction. It's not like Arya becomes a peasant or adopts their interests or is able to shed her, her noble background. And that tension is a really important part of her story. Like you see that with Gendry in A Storm of Swords when he gets really jealous of Edric Dane because he has a noble background and can kind of talk to Arya that way and he can't. And so much about so much of Arya's story is about passing, about succeeding at passing and failing at passing in various forms. You know, her pretending to be a boy when it's useful to her, but then, you know, Gendry finds out immediately. She adopts all these different names, but Jacques and Hagar sees right through her. And when you get to the faceless men in the House of Black and White for Arya and Feast and Dance, that's a whole different kind of passing at a metaphorical level where you're literally putting a new face on instead of just metaphorically. And, yeah, I think it's really important to consider how Arya, how Arya deals with this morally and how she's just, she's kind of crumbling and afraid inside. And she, she's not able to fully negotiate these new relationships. And it, it's, it's, that's going to be important when she gets to the Brotherhood and it's going to be important in her dealings with the Faceless Men. But then you get kind of, we transition away from that as the, as the bells start tolling. Ah, the bells, those ever important bells in King's Landing. And then we get the reveal that, uh, Ned's being taken off to be executed. And I love how George does this because he, he first puts that idea that Ned's going to be executed in the mouth of the, of this, this boy that's running off to the square to answer the summoning. So, you know, first time through, we're tempted to go, oh, that boy's just lying or exaggerated. Like he's just caught up in the excitement. He doesn't really know what's going on. And he has the other, uh, other peasants doubt it. One of them says they ain't either going to lop him since when do they nick traitors on the steps of the great sept? Which a fair point, but one might as well ask, since when do they kill guests at a wedding? Taboos are being broken. We're, it's, it's fitting the theme of instability and danger that was early on in this chapter. Where are you realizing, oh, I can't rely on social niceties to protect me anymore? And the same thing is true at a political level, that Joffrey is going to break taboos and really break the, the, his own family's strategy to win the war. And I really love that when Arya hears this, that they're, they're taken off the hand, her father to potentially be executed— she doesn't like, you know, lie on her back and scream, ah, at the sky, like point break. <laughs> There's that great moment in Hot Fuzz when they make fun of that. Did you ever shoot your gun in the air and scream, ah? No, I never shot my gun in the air and screamed, ah. And it's, that would be fine, but it could, I think you can see George thinking, ah, this might be a little melodramatic. How do I handle this in, in a more subtle way? And I love it because right after she hears that, it, George describes how there is a rut in the road from a wagon. And the, the boy saw it, but Arya never did. Why? Because she's running so fast. Because she just heard this heart-stopping, heartbreaking news that her father might be executed. So she's not looking. And she falls in, and she gets injured. Her thumbnail breaks open, and it's blooding, and she's she's sobbing. And that, that gets across the emotion of the moment without, like, pausing the action for a paragraph to describe Arya's inner monologue. No, my father, it can't be. Like, that would be fine. Mm-hmm. That's, like, the, the instinctive thing to do with this scene. But I, I love that that George uh, frames it in a different way. And it keeps going when the, when the red wines almost run her down. Horror and slobber, of course. Again, that reflects the class dynamics that will dominate Arya's story going forward, that she has to jump out of the way lest these nobles, you know, literally run her down with her horses. But it also reflects the end of her innocence. Like she says, you know, oh, these are the, these are the guys that Sansa and Jane used to make fun of back in happier times, back when Dad wasn't a prisoner, back when we hadn't, you know, had the Tower of the Hand just overrun and everyone killed they don't look so silly now she thinks to herself nothing looks silly to Arya now nothing looks fun or childish to Arya now because that's all going away and she she pushes pushes and shoves her way through the crowd these these masses that will slowly vanish over the course of her storyline until you get to like the end of her storm of sword storyline and the riverlands feels like empty like most of the people are gone and it's just ash and dust you know, em- empty space comes to dominate war-torn westeros even more so when you get to a feast for crows 
And, and you have this image of, of only Baylor being able to save her. Like, only the statue is there. Like, this, this religious king is like a god reaching down its hand from the heavens to pluck up Arya Stark. And she's praying to the gods to save her, but to save her father. But, of course, no gods hear her prayers. And, you know, Baylor, for all that he was religious and believed himself the avatar of the Seven to a certain extent, is just a statue of a long-dead man like the Crips. If the Seven exist, they, they don't care enough to intervene. Uh, speaking of which, as you said earlier, Ned makes an interesting reference to them in his confession, sir. You want to you wanna tell the people about that? In Ned's confession, he says the following things, which I think is very, very interesting. And he says, uh, quote, uh, sorry about that, let me find it. He says, quote, I betrayed the faith of my king and the trust of my friend Robert. I swore to defend and protect his children, yada, yada, yada. And then he says, here's the important part. Let the High Septon and Baylor the Beloved and the Seven bear witness to the truth of what I say. Joffrey Baratheon is the one true heir to the Iron Throne, and by the grace of all the gods, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and Protector of the Realm. Well, what do you guys think? Do you think that Ned swearing to the faith of the Seven is, you know, a... uh, Something that you, we should be taking like without like a grain of salt or should, is Ned basically going wink, wink, nod, nod. Guys, remember me? I'm how I'm Ned Stark of House Stark from the north of Winterfell. What do I pray to? Who do I pray to? I don't pray to some fucking faith of the seven. I pray to the old gods and let them bear truth and bear witness to the things that I believe in and what I'm actually confessing. So what Ned is essentially communicating there to anyone who is smart enough to hear it is that he is making a false confession and he is saying he's making a confession under extreme duress too as you guys all well know because of course Varys had threatened Sansa's life in Eddard 15 which we covered with our, our friend Lauren aka Shakes of Thrones a fantastic wonderful singer who did a, a really really cool version of Jenny's song if you guys want to go ahead and look at it so take a look at her on, on her SoundCloud page if you guys have any opportunity to do so but in that chapter itself Varys threatens Ned and through his children he doesn't threaten like Ned is basically like yeah you just kill me whatever I don't give a shit I'm, an, I'm a soldier I can die whenever I want to I've you know made my peace with dying long ago but when he threatens Sansa then he finally relents but here he's basically being like he's basically doing the thing like if you guys remember from um <laughs> I don't, I don't know how this, this comparison is going to go, or probably like a lead balloon, as most of my comparisons do. But during the Vietnam War, Air Force and Navy pilots who were captured by the North Vietnamese, they took taped confessions of them saying like, oh, we're being treated very well here and in, in, at uh, the prison in, in Hanoi, Vietnam. There they, they feed us every day. You know, we sleep on feather beds. And then they would blink Morse code being like, um... No, that's actually really wrong. Like we're being tortured. I think the one guy blinked out torture when Norse Cove with his blinking with his eyes. And that's basically what Ned is communicating here that um, that essentially like he's making a false confession because, no, he would never swear an oath to the seven in front of everyone. So that's basically what I was referring to earlier. I think it's a really cool point that we have Ned uh kind of communicating subtly. It's showing that Ned isn't dumb. In fact, he's quite clever and quite wise here so that, you know, if somebody came back on him, because, I mean, he's not expected to die here in the scene, he could be like, no, like I, I swore in front of the Faith of the Seven. I only swear to the old gods. So anyways, I, I just think that's an interesting kind of touch and something I never saw before before I read this, reread this chapter for this podcast. That is a great catch. It's like when Ned, you know, assigned the or wrote the will a little differently than what Robert told him to so he could make Stannis the heir. 
But, you know, it's interesting. You have these these little hints around the edges that Ned is not quite as, as simple a character as his reputation suggests, which is, is going to be true also of Davos Seaworth when we get into him. He's, you know, I think Davos has a, a little more darkness and wildness to him than his uh, squeaky clean reputation suggests. And dude was a smuggler forever, so it's, it's not like he's uh, not got some some wildness to him. But yeah, it, it's that's really heartbreaking because you get at what's lost in this chapter. It's not just Ned. Of course it is. It's not just the damage his death does psychologically to his children, although of course that's immense, it's that he takes this secret to his grave. It's that he doesn't get to go and go to the go to the, the wall and tell uh tell John the truth about his parentage and maybe, you know, go back on his not actual oath here because of the loophole you're pointing out and say that no Stannis is the true heir. All of that dies with him. And it's such a great parallel to it at the beginning of the book when Ned beheaded someone with ice who also had a, a very important secret he took to the grave. <laughs> he, you know, when when Garrett died, he took the secret of the White Walkers return with him to a certain extent. And now Ned is being beheaded at the end of the book with that same sword and he's taking his own secrets with them. And you can just see the, the the great structure of that and how George has kind of, as we were saying, kind of designed the, the whole book to reach this point, that this is really the climax. Obviously, there are incredible chapters that come after this. You know, I wouldn't trade the ending of this book with the birth of the dragons for the world, but this is this is the climactic moment of a Game of Thrones for sure. And then we get to the execution itself. And I think we have to talk about Joffrey's smile when he smiles to Sansa right before he gives the order. For me, this is like the purest example of villainy in the series. It's not the most like complicated. It doesn't have the biggest impact, but it's it's like the atomic core of awful, like stripping it down to its essence, like one simple act. Like Joffrey smiles just because he knows it'll hurt Sansa more if he does that. If he shows her and the audience the image of the perfect prince before snatching it away, there's no other reason to do it. It's just it's so breathtaking in its pettiness and its cruelty. And that, that's why I look askance at any plan, be it Renly's or Tywin's or Littlefinger's, that involves this sadistic little fuck remaining in power. Like, you can't fix this, what's wrong with Joffrey. There's, there's, I don't think there's any way he could have been made a good king with, with that, that fucking haunting smile. And, and then he gives the command, and there's just, there's just nothing anyone can do. Despite this being an affront to everyone involved and dumb on every conceivable level, despite Cersei <laughs> and Varys having this plan set up beforehand, there's nothing anyone can do. And as you say, there's, there's a systemic critique there. If the rule you followed brought you here, of what use was the rule? What kind of worthy system puts Joffrey in charge? Like, that's not to say we enlightened moderns have figured out the problem <laughs> of power. We have not. But that unchecked monarchy is being exposed as not only bad, but like childishly bad. Like, pathetically bad. Like, just wretched. It promises order, but offers madness. Madness and stupidity, if I may quote Tywin in the show. And then you have uh, Yorin stepping in to, to save Arya in this moment of chaos. And, and that fits. You know, Yorin, he, uh, he stubbornly believes in the ability of the Night's Watch to bring order to chaos. I think he's a really politically interesting character in that he, he believes the Night's Watch is kind of this unifying force for the realm and a force for good in this time of, of division and war. It, it's how you synthesize a, a genuine realm out of this madness. And that's that's a, a theme that's going to come up. You know, we've been pretty harsh on the Night's Watch as an institution, like when we did our, our John 8 episode with Kim Renfro. But uh, Yorin shows us an interesting side of it. And as you were saying earlier, it's part of Arya's process where she learns she has to judge people as individuals not just like the institutions they represent and not just the background because like Yorin like he wears black and he's smelly and he's mean and like you know in, in every possible fantasy trope kind of way Yorin should be a villain right but he's he's and he's kind of a jerk to Arya in a lot of ways even as he's saving her life but he's, he's got this this heart to him and this core to him that Arya actually finds really admirable and that's why she's so really devastated in Clash of Kings when he dies 
But again, that doesn't make him friendly. And in this scene, in the context of just this scene in isolation, he is just another threatening element that Arya can't understand or control. Just coming out of nowhere and grabbing her. But he gives her this mercy. He knows what to say. Don't look. Don't watch this. And it's just this, as many people have pointed out, it's this inversion of Arya and Sansa's story where, you know, Arya uh, is generally shown more the, the actual effects of the war. And Sansa obviously sees and experiences a lot of violence in her own storyline. But Arya just sees... This, these grotesque over-the-top cruelties over and over again, but she's the one who doesn't have to witness this, and Sansa is the one who has to witness this, and it haunts her so much, as we're going to see in her last chapter. And again, you get that haunting moment that I was talking about with, with the breath going out of the crowd, just like the whispering wood letting out all its breath in the battle, as, as Catelyn, ten, Catelyn described it in her 10th chapter. And then everyone else gets to go home, but Arya's life is gone, as George writes it. Everyone else can resume their business. And of course, because ultimately for them, what's another High Lord failing at the Game of Thrones? Why should they care? There's no reason for them to care. But for Arya, that's dad. That's her whole life. And I think George does want us to adopt that perspective. And, you know, we, we were talking earlier about, you know, this is being a shocking moment and the one that demonstrates that no one is safe and George is going to kill off main characters. And it is that, but... You know, that that's what it was clearly in 1996, and that's what it was clearly in 2011. And I think at this point, we need to move beyond that. I think we need to move past Ned's death as genre deconstruction and, and realize realize it's tragedy. That, that That's the core of what's happening here. Ned is not just being swept off stage to make way for the real protagonists. He It matters. There is a Ned Stark-shaped hole in the story that follows, and in his children, and in us. He's this emotional and thematic presence still that defines so much of the story to come. Men's lives have meaning, not their deaths. And Ned's story, his life, just it meant so much more than the image of an honor-bound fool. We see this most clearly in the books in A Dance with Dragons, when the, the clansmen we were talking about earlier are willing to fight and die for, quote, the Ned's little girl. Who's going to do that for Tywin Lannister? His legacy is a feast for crows. Ned's is a dream of spring. And the show adds another layer to this in my single favorite addition the show made to the canon, which is Ned shouting Baylor to Yorn when he sees Arya on the statue. And we see from his POV him knowing in his final moments that it worked, that Arya got out alive. <laughs> for once, for once, he gets to actually save the children and nothing goes wrong. He, he gets to go to his grave knowing that at least he did that one thing right. And that's such a wonderful grace note to add for the character. And that's why I said earlier that I think this execution, so to speak, of this scene on the show is even better in the books. So, poor one out for Eddard Stark. He, he was a good man in a shitty world. He tried to do the right thing, and, and that's all any of us can do. I think that's a really wonderful way of saying it. Yeah, he tried to do the right thing, and he did, ultimately. I love that it, it, invention by the show of, of Ned pointing out Baylor to Yorn, and his final act is saving children, much as the first, not his first actual act, but the first act we're known, we, we can assume is that he saves the life of Jon Snow by saving children. His entire life is dedicated to saving children and being horrified when they're not saved in the cases of Rhaegar's kids by Tywin Lannister at the end of Robert's Rebellion. That's such a powerful theme in literature, and it's so strong of theme in A Song of Ice and Fire. It goes beyond Ned Stark to, you know, Elaria Sand in A Dance with Dragons talking about, like, well, like all of these people who did wrong are dead, but you're endangering my own children and everyone's children to get your vengeance. Like, this is wrong, and that's so powerful that goes throughout A Dance with Dragons as well. It's especially found in Dance with Dragons and Danny's Arc 2 and other places as well. And, you know, I, I love the fact, too, you're pointing out that Yoram, this dirty, grungy dude who probably listens to Soundgarden and, you know, probably smokes a little weed and stuff like that, does all sorts of other sins, I'm assuming, as well, is the guy that actually saves, you know, 
Arya Stark. I was thinking, and because you know, I'm never, I'm not going to drop the opportunity to throw some shade at Sir Barristan Selmy, but I was thinking that we do know from Dance that Sir Barristan Selmy was also in the crowd at Baylor's Sept. And yes, I don't want to totally damn Barristan Selmy, he wouldn't necessarily have been able to do this, but I was thinking it was an interesting touch on George's part to have the man in black save Arya Stark instead of the man in white, Sir Barristan Selmy there. That was an interesting narrative choice on Martin's part. Now, again, it's always a possibility that George later invented the fact that Barristan Selmy was in the crowd there and witnessed Ned Stark's execution, but I do think like having Yorin contrasted against Barristan, having the ugly guy with the hunched back, the black cloak, his breath smells like wine contrasted against the perfect knight, the guy that we're all supposed to aspire to. I think that's really, really powerful stuff too, that, you know, these people that we often dismiss in society as being those unworthy of our loyalty and affection are the ones that often come out of nowhere and out of nowhere. I mean, in the books, at least it's out of nowhere that Yorin comes and saves Arya's life in, in the book, in the show, it's a little bit different, but I do love that invention in the show itself. But out of nowhere in the books, a guy in black who has seen Arya one other time in his entire life saves her life for no other reason than besides it's a good and noble deed. He doesn't have a sir in front of his name. He doesn't have a lordship behind him. He's a man of the Night's Watch sworn to protect those who are underneath of the wall. You nailed it, sir. Yorin's definitely one of my favorite minor characters for exactly those reasons you were outlining. And I can't wait to talk about him in Clash. You know, one, one thing I wanted to close out with before we talked about uh, foreshadowing and groundwork is Ned Stark's bones. You know, that's kind of a, a big thread left hanging in the series. It comes up when they get back to Riverrun in A Clash of Kings and Catelyn sees them and she sends them on north to Winterfell. And then we hear Barbary Dustin and Dance talking about how she has made sure that's not going to happen because of her bitter feelings about the Starks. Similar to Theon's in a way, she points out. And I feel like a huge part of Endgame in the books, for the Starks especially, have to be those bones coming home. And those bones being put in the crypt. And that the kids finding some kind of closure. Like, I I would bet money that's going to be like Sansa's last POV chapter in the books. Like, the Queen in the North interring those bones and, and feeling a sense of, okay, it's now okay that Ned is dead. Because as we were talking about in our episode on, on Daenerys 8... You know, the, the instinct to uh, reverse this kind of horrible event and bring back your lost ones and bring back your innocence, while very understandable, is ultimately screwing with the laws of the universe and only bad things are going to happen. So I, I think part of the Starks coming home and the Starks learning their father's lessons and proving, you know, better, uh, having a better legacy than, than Tywin Lannister's is, is making peace with dad's death and allowing him to, to be with his family and allowing him to, to, Allowing him to not just be an open wound in their lives anymore. Allowing him to, to be the be the image of the father who loved them and was trying his best for them and, and them able to access that together. I, I feel strongly that's going to happen in some form in the books because of the amount of setup, as I was saying earlier. And I I, I really, that's, that's, that's going to be the moment if we do get that in the books where I will break down and cry for sure. I would probably do the same, except for I don't cry because I'm a big, strong man. I only weep. But yeah, I think it's a... <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was a good one. Boop, boop. That was so, a really good one. I, 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 try, I try to do what I can. But yeah, that's a fantastic point. I would love to have that as being the final moment in Winterfell is Ned's bones returning back. And that allows the Stark children to have the closure to move on. And that is ultimately a dream of spring. You talked about Ned's legacy being a dream of spring and Tywin's being a feast for crows. A dream of spring is Ned returning to Winterfell to be buried next to his sister, his father, and his brother. And that is... Awesome. I love thinking about that idea. And I love the fact that, you know, as, as sad as this is, a, a lot of times people look at funerals as a way for folks to kind of process their grief and, and move on out of the funeral or the wake, whatever you, your, your tradition is. And 
I, I, Ned deserves a funeral more than anything else. And I think for the start for his kids, for George R. Martin as well, as he concludes the Song of Ice and Fire, it's, you know, next week or the week after that in Dream of Spring, but also for us as readers too. I mean, we're now, it's, it's, it's May 27, 2019 as we're reviewing and analyzing this chapter. We still feel that sense of sadness. I still feel that sense of sadness deep inside of my, uh, belly soul that, that's where my soul is in my belly right I, I don't know whatever but uh, I still feel that and I feel like when Ned finally gets interred under Winterfell that will be the final place where we as a fandom can move on from Ned Stark and you know, ultimately move on from A Song of Ice and Fire always keeping the memory alive but being able to process those emotions in a in a, in a good way I think yeah exactly you don't want the Stark kids to end up like uh, Duran and Oberyn whom I love dearly but and their, you know, drive to get vengeance for Elia is certainly righteous and understandable, but it's also kind of ruined their lives. It, it gets Oberyn killed, it causes Duran to come up with this grand master plan that ends up really screwing over his kids. And I, I think part of the point is going to be the Starks, when we come back to them at the end of the story, moving on from that and loving their father, but not allowing the present to kind of become hostage to the past in the way it is for, for a lot of these characters. So I think that's going to be our, our final grace note for Ned Stark and his impact on the series. So moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork, we have been comparing Ned's execution to the Red Wedding, and perhaps perhaps the strongest link, besides, you know, the feels, uh, is, how, <laughs> is how the chapter ends, very specifically with a Stark woman, Arya, being grabbed by the hair as a knife flashes towards her. And that is spookily similar to Catelyn at the Red Wedding, when she gets grabbed by the hair and thinks that devastating line about how Ned loves her hair, and then the knife comes towards her, and its, it's bite was red and cold. As we always say with stuff like this, it's unlikely that George had this in mind when he was writing book one. But I gotta feel like Ned's execution in the Red Wedding as these twin big events were probably present in his mind as well, not just ours. So maybe he deliberately wrote the end of the Red Wedding that way to kind of link back to this moment. I think that's a fantastic point. And, you know, another kind of like connection to the Red Wedding I was just thinking about is that this chapter is the death of Ned Stark, one of our point of view characters. And at the end of this chapter, it's a bit of a cliffhanger whether Yorin intends to actually murder Arya Stark there in the streets of King's Landing, which is the same exact goddamn thing that happens in the Storm of Swords where, you know, an axe comes out of nowhere. And, and that's the last thing we get from that next Arya chapter after Catelyn's, I want to say it's her eighth chapter, is that where she actually dies in the Storm of Swords? Seventh. Seventh chapter, there you go. So after the seventh chapter, we get the Arya chapter, we get the outside of the camps, Sandra Clegane fighting the phrase, and then all of a sudden that axe head comes out of nowhere in the darkness, and boom, we don't have Arya for another like three or four hundred pages. For sure, it's, it's, it's a huge gap, and that's just to reflect the emotions of it, how, how just this lingering impact and the hole inside that you feel, which again gets to what I was talking about, that these aren't just characters being glibly wiped off the map because they're not the true protagonists. I mean, we're going to make the same argument with Rob Stark, that he often gets treated that way. It's like, oh, he was just kind of a fool and he's a fake protagonist and we, you know, hey, he really had it coming. And I really don't think that's at all what George intends. And I, I think Rob is written so beautifully and sadly in A Storm of Swords. And I, again, I think we should start framing these events not just as shocking deconstructive twists because they're not shocking deconstructive <laughs> twists anymore. We've been living with them for years. They're very familiar at this point. And we should we should be thinking of these as as the high tragedy that, that George is including in his fantasy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So a little bit more foreshadowing groundwork here. We do have Arya early in this chapter talking about Flea Bottom and the pot shops with their bowls of brown and all of the delicious. Is it delicious? It's not. It's not delicious at all. Those unsavory ingredients that come back into extreme um they come back extremely uh, relevant in A Storm of Swords when Tyrion has Sir Bronn, later Lord Bronn of the Blackwater, later Lord Bronn of Stokeworth, add the singer Simon Silvertongue to the pot. And that starts this whole motif in A Song of Ice and Fire about 
eating human flesh. Well, it doesn't quite start it. That's kind of always existing in the background, but it starts vaulting that forward. But and, until in, in Advanced Strategy, we have Brand eating long pork out north of the wall. We have Wyman Manderly feeding fray pies to the, those people at Winterfell. And we can imagine that motif will continue existing in further and more gruesome detail come the Winds of Winter next week. For sure. I love that you pointed out the, the motif of cannibalism. That's one of my favorite aspects of dance is this, this, I mean, dance, we, we love it so much. I think it's because it's so bleak and miserable. And that, that's definitely a huge aspect of it. You see in so many storylines. And it's, I think George, uh, you know, uh, uh, George explores that for a variety of reasons, partially just kind of for the horror aspect of it all, but also to emphasize just the pitiless, wretched state of affairs as Westeros descends into war in winter. And, you know, it makes perfect sense to have this cannibalistic attitude starting off this chapter, given how it ends. Um, and the last bit of foreshadowing we're going to talk about here, one of the most uh, direct blunt bits of it, is uh, right after the bells start ringing, and uh, one woman leans out a window and says, Ah, is it the boy king that's died now? Ah, that's a boy for you. They never last long. And she's right. Joffrey doesn't survive book three, as it turns out. The boy king doesn't last too long. Of course, it could also be referring to Rob, who's going to be a boy king by the end of this book and doesn't even last as long as Joffrey. Yes, that is an excellent point because Joffrey is, um, he's going to die quite, uh, well, quite soon, like narratively speaking in terms of the timeline. I think it's only about eight to ten months after this event that Joffrey is going to bite it, literally, in, uh, in terms of biting an actual piece of uh, pie. And that's going to be uh, awesome when we get to that. Of course, George frames it in kind of an interesting way and he tries to make Joffrey's death really... Uh, heart-wrenching in the form of seeing Cersei, witnessing it and stuff like that. But yeah, ah, that's a boy for you. They never last long. Well, that is absolutely true. Joffrey is not going to last that long and neither is Rob Stark. And, you know, neither is Jon Snow, too. Kill the boy, as Baster Aemon says. And Jon is, what, all of 17 years old when he stabbed the end of A Dance of Dragons. And when he comes back, I don't imagine he's going to be a boy any longer. He's not going to be a boy much longer after that. Well said. And of course, it applies to poor Tommen as well, who may be the single most doomed character going into the Winds of Winter. Everything is pointing to Tommen dying and it's going to be pretty horrible. So that's, you know, that's fun. <laughs> what a fun time we're having. Look look at the fun we're having, to quote Shotirian. So that about wraps us up for foreshadowing and groundwork. Moving on to our discussion section. On the surface... It seems pretty clear who bears responsibility for Ned Stark's execution, right? Joffrey. Mm -hmm. Sure. As established in Eddard 15, Cersei has arranged a deal to send Ned to the Wall in the hopes that Rob and his bannermen can be pacified so the Lannisters can deal with Stannis, who they consider to be the real threat. Joffrey altered the deal because he's an arrogant little prick who loves nothing more than public displays of violence and lacks even a rudimentary grasp of political and military strategy. This is repeatedly reinforced in A Clash of Kings early on. Cersei tells Tyrion about the plan and how her beloved perfect son messed it all up. And Yorin tells Arya that he was paid off by a mysterious stranger, a.k.a. Varys, to take Ned as well as Gendry to the Wall before Joffrey intervened. And thematically, y you know that does work very well. The best laid plans go awry due to childish bloodlust that is enabled by a corrupt power structure, as we were saying. So, case closed. Thanks for listening. You can check us out at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOIF. No. I think, uh, you know, way back when we covered Eddard IV, we argued that again while on the surface, Robert seems to be responsible for the Crown's catastrophic finances. There were strong hints that it was actually Littlefinger as Master of Coin who broke the bank. Along the same lines, I would argue George has left us clues that Joffrey does not bear sole responsibility here, that Littlefinger urged him to execute Ned. Hmm, yeah, I think that's... There's a strong case to be made here that it's not... 
necessarily just Joffrey acting out of pure cruelty. Now, is Joffrey capable of that type of cruelty? Yes, absolutely. Joffrey is very, very capable of cruelty. He is capable of violence. We see that, especially in A Clash of Kings, where he takes out his nice crossbow and starts shooting at peasants who come begging for food, because that's something that a normal person does, right? No, no, of course not. So the interesting idea that has kind of surfaced since the Game of Thrones is this idea that it's Littlefinger who's the one who urged Joffrey to execute Ned and is not officially confirmed by George R. R. Martin or either outside of the universe or within the books themselves. But Tyrion's chapters, especially in A Clash of Kings and Tyrion's conversations with Varys, do give some hint that potentially it was Littlefinger who was the one behind the scenes pulling the strings in order to er, in order to get Ned killed. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about motivation here and what is actually bring what Littlefinger is hoping to get out of this. We do know that kind of chaos is a ladder, that kind of thing that Littlefinger talks about in season three of Game of Thrones. And, you know, Ned Stark, Ned Stark's execution guarantees that. You know, shit's about to go real wrong. It's not just going to be the Lannisters versus Stannis and Renly. It's going to be the Lannisters versus Stanley versus, versus Stanley. Stanley, now there's a ship. Oh, gosh. I'm going to cover my head in shame with that. Uh, we, it's going to be the Lannisters versus the Starks versus Stannis versus Renly versus the Tyrells versus Dorne, potentially. You have all of these different all these different factions that are playing out against each other. And Littlefinger is going to utilize that chaos to further his position in the realm, first getting Harrenhal at the end of Blackwater and, and getting the alliance between the Lannisters and the Tyrells, and then later becoming Lord Paramount, not Lord Paramount, becoming Lord Protector of the Vale, because he's now the Lord of Harrenhal. He can marry Lysa Tully and that Lysa, Lysa Aaron at that point. And that will allow him to get more and more power and start to invest himself in more and more regions of Westeros, which will then, of course, factor into his plot line in The Winds of Winter, where he is looking to potentially gain the North, too. For sure. Littlefinger jumps on all these opportunities, and they're not immediately obvious in the first book. I don't think he's planned that many steps ahead, but he knows instinctively that this is going to create more opportunities for him to step forward, make him more useful to the Lannisters as they're in desperate straits. And then, of course, more personally, Littlefinger has this vendetta against House Stark, thanks to his duel with Brandon. That's clearly driving his resentment against Ned to a large degree. And he has already betrayed Ned once. Ostensibly, it was because Ned wouldn't keep silent about Joffrey's heritage. But in truth, I think we all know it's because Ned married Catelyn. He had the temerity to get the girl that Littlefinger wanted. Speaking of Cat, it's it's possible that Littlefinger still has an interest in her and wants Ned out of the way for that reason. He implies as much in Season 2 when he runs into her at Storm's End, but that is kind of a show-invented plotline. And we do learn from Cersei's chapters in A Dance with Dragons that Littlefinger had already asked for Sansa's hand in marriage at this point and been rebuffed. So he might have already moved on in... in in terms of which Stark Tully woman he's going to project his insecurities onto. And as such, this might just be his way of, of getting back at Cersei by messing up her plans. Like, oh, she wouldn't let me, you know, marry Sansa, so I'm, I'm going to screw up her peace deal and put the Lancers back. Littlefinger is, is often very, very petty in that regard, as we'll see with his dealings with Tyrion that you mentioned. So that kind of establishes... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Jeff. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, oftentimes, much like we talked about Tywin Lannister having very, like, shrouding his motivations in kind of this Machiavellian, the ends justify the means, I will do this horrible thing in order for the greater good to prevail. It's not actually what Tywin Lannister believes. He's actually much more invested emotionally in things than he lets on. And the same thing kind of goes for Littlefinger here, where he always talks about, ah, chaos is a ladder, you know, as, you know, Aiden Gillen says is in the form of Was that Sean Connery? Was that Sean Connery Connery? as Littlefinger? Ah, the greatest of miscastings. I mean, the Irish and the Scottish are basically the same, right? The same accents, too? (laughs) Wow, that's going to get you more hate than anything you've ever said, Jeff. (laughs) 
gosh, I can't believe that would give me more hate than everything I've ever said. But yeah, I mean, Littlefinger, though, ultimately, though, is much more a person who is very much feeding on those old grievances that he feels against the Starks and the Tullys. And he will often like say that I'm doing this to cause chaos so I can advance. And it's just completely unemotional. It's just me building myself up slowly and slowly through war and chaos. But in fact, he actually has more base motives and mind and more emotions that are at stake. Yeah, Littlefinger thinks he's the Joker, but he's got these these intensely personal motives that really drive him and kind of add a, a pathetic aura to the whole thing. So, you know, we've established motive for Littlefinger being involved in this, moving on to more kind of means and opportunity. While Joffrey does, of course, love being a tyrant and being in charge and making everyone dance at his whims, we also see him, given his age, repeatedly influenced by his elders. You know, Cersei can't tell him what to do here, but she influences his his opinions and worldview in a lot of ways. Robert, Joffrey seemed to have kind of a semi-hero fixation on and did some stuff to impress him. And as we is intimated in Storm of Swords, he arranged for the cat's paw attack on Bran because Robert said it would be a good idea and mercy. Even Sandor is able to influence Joffrey in a lot of ways. So it's not out of the question that even Joffrey hopped up in power would be able to be manipulated by the right adult. We know he's vulnerable to flattery. We know from A Storm of Swords that he loves a sophomoric joke. And that seems to me like prime material for Littlefinger to schmooze the new king. Like he's, he's going to make some, some sassy jokes and flatter Joffrey and Joffrey's going to nod along and go, okay, okay. I like this guy. I'll keep him around. We're going to see in Sansa 6, Joffrey at court doesn't handle like 90% of the cases brought before him. Only the ones where he can inflict violence are the ones he's interested in. But it's not just Cersei he lets take most of those cases. He lets Littlefinger do it as well. So suggesting Littlefinger is, is actively taking a role in Joffrey's government. And it wouldn't be the only time Littlefinger uses his influence subtly from behind the scenes. As he describes how he spreads Joffrey's reputation at Bitterbridge. You know, he praises the boy to the high heavens when he's talking directly to the Tyrells, but he pays his man to spread disturbing rumors. You can, you can see him kind of working through a cutout here. It also wouldn't be the only time he commits murder via cat's ball in order to foster conflict. That's exactly what he did with John Aaron. He got Lysa to poison John Aaron and frame the Lannisters. He could be basically doing the same thing here. And then there's Janos Slint, whom Cersei will later say uh, went ahead as soon as Joffrey spoke without any word from me, which is interesting. Of course, Janos might just be following Joffrey's orders as, as a loyal, you know, toady and stooge that he is. But it's interesting that Cersei is, is so, like, irritated by this and that George has her talk about it because... Well, you might think maybe, maybe Janos Slint is taking orders from someone else. Who might he follow? Well, what does Littlefinger say in Edward 13? The gold cloaks follow the man who pays them. And Littlefinger is the man who pays. So maybe Janos Slint was so ready to go because he already knew about the plan. Littlefinger, it kind of tipped him off and was like, you know, don't, don't let Cersei stop you. Don't look to Cersei all confused when Joffrey gives this order. Immediately do it. Uh, what, what, what convinces me above all, though, is there's this uh, subtle but telling omission as everything goes to hell in this chapter. When, when Arya describes the various nobles on the dais, when she's first on, on Baylor's statue looking at everybody, she establishes that Littlefinger is indeed present, as, as you pointed out in your synopsis. She thought the short man with the silvery cape and pointed beard might be the one who had once fought a duel for mother. Yet, after Joffrey gives the order, Littlefinger is not among those protesting it. We see Varys run over. We see Cersei whispering in Joffrey's ear. We see the High Septon affronted by this insult to his face. But Littlefinger? He doesn't move a muscle. And this is in spite of Cersei saying in A Dance with Dragons that he helped arrange this deal to send Ned Stark to the Wall. So why isn't he as upset as Varys? Because for him, it's all going according to plan. He lit the fuse and now he gets to sit back with that smug smile on his face and watch as the dynamite go off. Everyone else in this scene is is yelling and shaking their fists and running over and causing chaos. Science is crying. Arya's trying to slash her way through the crowd. Littlefinger is just sitting perfectly still. 
And it, obviously that's subtle. You could easily say I'm, I'm making too much of it, but it, it feels like a, a notable omission on George's part to me. It does feel like a notable omission. And if you watch the scene from Game of Thrones season one, episode nine, you will notice the same sort of staging happening where you have everyone running over and trying to convince Joffrey to stop. Even Cersei is there being like kind of like reaching out for Joffrey and he like kind of brushes her off. But they do have one shot of Littlefinger just kind of standing there like above it all. He's got nothing on his mind besides just watching the chaos play out as if he expected it. And, you know, again, the showrunners are also not going to establish that, are not going to say like, well, George, when George told us that when that little finger was behind this, but at the same time, they are establishing that not meta, but within the narrative itself, that Littlefinger just stands there, looks on as if he has just won the greatest victory in his entire life. He has gotten his revenge on the Starks. He's gotten his revenge on the Tullys in some sense with the war that he started in the Riverlands. And now all he has to do, stand back and watch the man who had stolen Catelyn Stark in his own mind because he's a fucking lunatic and fucking psychopath. Stand back and watch that guy die in front of him. And that's got to be so satisfying for such a fucking psychopath like Lord Littlefinger. Yeah, this really makes you hate him more than ever. There's so many good reasons to hate Littlefinger. Jane Poole's treatment, I think, is just number one on my list personally. But if Littlefinger is indeed responsible for what happens here, then once again, just as with poisoning John Aaron... He has plunged the continent into a civil war that will kill, injure, and dispossess thousands, all because he didn't get the girl. To be clear, as I've said before, I think Littlefinger actually does have a legitimate grievance against Hoster Tully, specifically, for how the latter treated him and Lysa. And if all Littlefinger did was work to weaken Riverrun politically, I would understand that. It still wouldn't be the best, most mature thing to do with your life, but I, under- I would understand that. I wouldn't be telling him to go die in a fire, as I am now. But Ned... Ned has never done Littlefinger any wrong other than pulling the dagger on him when Littlefinger was basically begging him to do it. He, he, John Aaron did even less than that. He, you know, ro- rose, raised Littlefinger up. They gave him a job, and all they did was make the mistake of trusting him, and he delights in their deaths for that reason, because he got them to trust him. And, you know, given that he's already trying to marry Sansa, there's, there's, there's such a dark level to this where he might be arranging Ned's death, not just out of his vendetta, not just because of the Civil War, not just to spite Cersei, but to isolate Sansa. To take away her Hmm. primary protector and guardian. Just look at how he manipulates her after killing Lysa, convincing her that she, quote, has no friend but Peter and has no choice but to put up with his increasingly gross grooming of her in isolation. And, you know, I think it's really telling that George chose not to show us Littlefinger actively grieving for Catelyn after the Red Wedding. Sansa never walks in on him crying and he tells her it was was about her mother because he doesn't actually view the Tully slash Stark women as people. They're just props in his personal revenge play. There's no humanity left in the dude at all. And, you know, Littlefinger's death was the unquestioned highlight of season seven, as far as I'm concerned. And after rereading this chapter and contemplating his possible role in Ned's death, I am more eager than ever for his downfall in the books, which I don't know if it'll take, I don't know if it'll look exactly like it did in season seven, but I am positive that Sansa will be the instigator behind it. And one of the many layers to that is she will be getting justice for her father. I agree. And that's the, the idea of justice is the really key theme here. Yes, it will be emotionally satisfying for us to watch Littlefinger die. It was emotionally satisfying for us too in A Dance with Dragons when John fetches, when John orders Ed to fetch a block to get to kill Janice Slint. But that decision, as well as the decision to kill Littlefinger, 
will be framed, I believe, as justice as opposed to vengeance, as opposed to this satiating our deep need to have something bad happen to someone who has done bad things. It's a completely understandable motivation, and it's a completely understandable motivation that you have characters like Doran Martell saying that he is out to kill the people who perpetrated horrible atrocities on his family at the end of A Feast for Dragons. A Feast for Dragons? Oh my god. At the end of A Feast for Gross. God, I'm just like fucking up this entire goddamn podcast this week. Oh, he says, uh, he says that every week, folks, and it's never true. Well, I appreciate that, but oh my gosh. But yes, Vengeance, Justice, Fire, and Blood, what that actually means is that innocents are going to suffer as a consequence to satiate Doran Martell's very personal and very emotional need for vengeance. When the event happens in a Dream of Spring, I have to imagine, I think Littlefinger is going to be, unfortunately, be around for the duration of the Winds of Winter. I don't imagine he's going to die at that, at some early juncture at the Winds of Winter, at the juncture of the story, because I know Jinx is listening in. I think that we are going to, he's going to be around for a while, and I think he's going to continue doing horrible, terrible things in the books. I think that Sweet Robin will likely be one of those characters that will die at Littlefinger's hands, whether it's through the poison plot that he's instigating with the maester up there, I think it's Maester Coleman, or whether there's some other way he's going to try and kill this boy, we're all going to look at Littlefinger and be like, yeah, he is such a slimy piece of shit and he needs to die like right now, right now, right now, right now, right now. But when it actually comes, it will be because of the crimes that he committed and it will be a just act in the books. Well put, sir. I mean, you're comparing it to the Martells and as we were saying earlier, you certainly sympathize with them given the horror inflicted upon their family. But it's, as Ilaria says, when you get to dance, the people who actually did that are all dead now. Tywin's dead. Amory Lorch is dead. Gregor is, I mean, technically alive, I guess, but I would call that worse than dead at this point. Again, like we were saying in our episode on A Game of Thrones, Danny 8, death is cleaner than what blood magic will do to you. And so there, there is a sense that the Martellus should not, you know, certainly not forget they're dead or forget what's done to them. But, you know, as John says in the show, in Hardhome, you don't... You can don't have to forget your dead. You can still honor and respect them, but without consuming the present and consuming the future and your children's lives in this endless pursuit of vengeance. And I think getting rid of Littlefinger is going to be a little different than that because he's still actively causing problems and he's still actively working at the downfall of, of House Stark and House Tully and seizing all this power for himself. And of course, he's just so personally reprehensible towards Sansa and Jane Poole. So I think that will be one of those rare situations like Janos Slint where George frames uh, an execution as not just the right thing to do, but there there is some genuine catharsis and closure to it. And once again, I, I could not possibly be anticipating it more. I absolutely agree. So I think that about wraps us up for this episode on the Game of Thrones Aria 5. As always, thank you everyone for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, and we are now available on Spotify too, as we've said a few times now. So go ahead and check us out there. For sure. Check out our Patreon if you haven't at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Patrons get early access to our weekly episodes, access to patron-exclusive episodes, the chance to ask us questions on the podcast, and much more. So check that out. You can follow us at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter, or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. So, earlier we said that we would answer the riddle that Lady B-Word had posed to us, and let me read that one more time for you guys, so everyone can make their final guesses as to who she's actually referring to. So her riddle says, I am the link to both of your names. I forfeited all my claims. I fought with the fish. I saw the frog die. When my time is due, will anyone cry? 
All right, you got 10 seconds to figure out, to make your last and final guesses as to who this word refers to. Okay, time is up. The answer is Sir Barristan Selmy. The link to your names is your Twitter handles, Brendan B. Fish and Porter Quentin, that is. He connects you both by fighting with the Blackfish during the Battle of the Stepstones and saw the frog, Quentin, die. He gave up his claims, well, you know that part. When my time is due, will anyone cry? Because he's changed sides a few times, and likely, he will, don't worry, and likely will change them again. We'll see about that. But no, it's an <laughs> excellent riddle and a, a perfect link between us. And yeah, maybe my favorite Barristan scene in the whole story is when he, he looks upon Quentin's face one last time and just like how his eyes have turned to pus and thinks about, man, not, not all people are meant to have a hero's journey and be this fantasy protagonist and he should have just stayed home. He should have had this, this simple life onto himself. And you get this sense of because so much of Barristan's chapters about how old he feels and you get the sense when he's looking at Quentin, he's like looking back through time at his younger self and thinking, wow, Every, everyone who was around me when I was a, a bold boy at Blackhaven is gone. They've all gone to ash and dust, just like this poor kid. So when we get to A Dance with Dragons in the 2030s sometime, <laughs> we'll spend a lot of time on that. So thank you, Lady Beward, for the riddle. Uh, check out her riddles if, if you haven't already. Uh, we're on Twitter. And uh, join us next week for Brand 7 as we continue the pattern established in this chapter of Ned Stark's children facing his death with Bran and Rickon. And then after that, we have Sansa dealing with it and John and Rob... Ah, once again, look at the fun we're having. So much fun morning for Ned Stark here in this tragedy of a fucking book. So much fun. So, thank you everyone for listening, and we will see you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>